Our reading today is from Langston Hughes. It's entitled Democracy. Democracy will not come today, this year, nor ever, through compromise and fear. I have as much right as the other fellow has to stand on my own two feet and own the land. I tire so of people saying, let things take their course. Tomorrow is another day. I do not need my freedom when I'm dead. I cannot live on tomorrow's bread. Freedom is a strong seed planted in a great need. I live here too. I want freedom just as you. Certainly powerful words from Langston Hughes this morning and words worth meditating on. I invite you to find that poem and to read it and reread it. I know I've been reading it throughout this week and it is interesting to see his hopes and dreams are perhaps the same hopes and dreams of right now in this moment. I, I have to be honest, this is a sermon I did not want to write. <laughs> um, you might have noticed uh, during this church year, every month we've lifted up a principle. Uh, one of our principles. Uh, we have eight principles here at UUCL, and um, we're going to get through, I believe, all eight of them uh, before I go on sabbatical. And so we are now on number five, which I've often called the unpopular principle. Uh, we often have new membership classes, and sometimes we ask people, what principle resonated with you the most? And more often than not, people do not choose number five, which is the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process in our institutions and in society at large. And maybe I reworded it wrong. That's okay. I got the heart of it. People don't look to our democratic principle as their absolute favorite. And yet it is still fundamental to Unitarian Universalism. It's fundamental to who we are uh, as a religious movement. And so this is something really worth exploring now, right now. And in exploring this, we need to begin with a realization that I had, and perhaps you've had this as well, that there's recent studies, both relatively recent in 2016, 2017, uh, out of Cambridge and Harvard, as well as more recent observations or uh, further um, uh, ways of reinforcing those studies from 2016 and 17, that comment on some very alarming news. My generation, millennials, and generations after me are both dissatisfied with democracy and more open to autocracy. In addition to that, the level of political extremism, right or left, amongst those generations is higher. If that is shocking information to you, believe me, it was shocking to me as well. If you simply cannot believe it, don't take my word for it. You can find growing commentaries on this phenomenon worldwide. Part of my shock was rooted in a jarring feeling, very jarring feeling. When I watched the Capitol riot and the images that are often used to mark that occasion, that insurrection, it didn't feel like I saw many people my age or younger. It felt like the Capitol riot was a baby boomer or a Gen Xer problem. If you look a little closer, there they are. 
my cohort amidst everyone else. Now, this isn't to say that periods of unrest are only generational. This simply challenged my assumptions. Each generation has its opinions of the preceding and succeeding generations, right? I don't need to tell you if you're a baby boomer, what were your assumptions of Gen Xers or the generation before you? If you're a Gen Xer, what were your assumptions of millennials or the baby boomers on and on and on and on? When I read that information from these findings out of Harvard and Cambridge, I was completely astonished. How could this be true? It certainly isn't for me or for people I know. But then there's that seductive lure of the echo chamber. As a clergy person in a very progressive religious tradition, the threat of the echo chamber is very high. I spend the overwhelming majority of my days with other progressives. Right here, this moment. Meetings throughout the weeks, even other clergy groups around town and around the world. My dear friends in Oxford consider themselves to be complete liberal clergy persons fighting the Anglican institution, right? Those are the people I fill my days with. Progressive Protestants, Catholics, Unitarian Universalists, even secular uh, folks who are in line with our values. I still don't want to believe that information. I want to believe that my generation and those yet to come will restore the balance in the world. But isn't that the hope of all generations? Hopes and opinions aside, the, the body of data speaks plainly. And you don't need a political science degree to notice. Democracy worldwide is threatened. In 2018, Daniel Ziblatt and Stephen Levitsky, who are government professors uh, and political scientists out of Harvard, published a book titled, How Democracies Die. Now, this book was published two years into the Trump administration, before the insurrection at the Capitol and before the complete shift in the balance of the Supreme Court. Their book echoes much of what political scientists and sociologists are discovering. Democracy is threatened. You can find an entire shelf worth of books about this very topic right now and more are being published. Ziblatt and Levitsky near the end of their book describe three possible scenarios post the era they were currently writing that book in, which was uh, the era of the Trump administration. First, Trumpism, which is this bizarre autocratic and yet populist movement that doesn't fit neatly into one category or the other. The first they suspected it would fail miserably. In the eyes of progressives, yeah, it did. But in the eyes of the nation, it did not. Second option, and they consider this the most likely outcome, whether or not a populist movement like Trumpism fails in our country, divisions will continue. The guardrails of democracy will be wobbly and perhaps topple, but it wouldn't be catastrophic immediately. The third scenario is the grimmest of them all. But the one which they said in 2018 is the least likely. It's a scenario in which populist nationalist movements continue to dominate American politics. It retains this movement or reclaims the presidency and both houses of, the, of Congress. It swings the majority of the Supreme Court for an entire generation. It manufactures electoral majorities through gerrymandering and voter suppression and it passes their agendas without a filibuster. Since I mostly speak to religious progressives on Sunday morning, I think it's worth noting that eliminating the filibuster sounds really good 
when progressives are uh, in, in power, right? <laughs> but anyway, I look at this worst case scenario and I realize that we aren't far off. Now, this isn't a Republican versus Democrat diatribe. This is an autocracy versus democracy exploration. It's rooted in the realization that the Center for Systemic Peace has downgraded the United States, the country that we are part of, from a democracy to an anocracy, a democracy that has autocratic traits, and increasingly so. The fact that there are correlations to our current parties is inescapable. And those correlations are not mutually exclusive. Autocracy is not just a Republican problem. It's not just a, the dominant expression of it, it. It's just the most dominant expression of it right now in our country. Now, because I'm a minister, right, I value not telling you who to vote for. Even if there are churches up and down Clays Mill Road and throughout our country that call themselves patriot churches that tell you who to vote for. I don't say this to cover myself, but I really believe it. I won't tell you who to vote for. Instead, I'm here to remind you of our values and our tradition. And I think that's enough. And in doing so, there are things that are simply incompatible with Unitarian Universalism. The subversion of democracy is one of those. Levitsky and Ziblatt don't just wallow in their prophecies, right, from <laughs> 2018. Honestly, I wonder how they feel about how those three scenarios panned out. It, it's not looking good. They do offer a very clear, albeit academic, assessment of how to save democracy. And it's to let this party subverting democracy suffocate itself, to die, to reconstitute itself, to shed the autocratic tendencies. And they give exhaustive examples. You know, they're Harvard professors of how this happened in Chile and elsewhere in the world. And that sounds all just fine and dandy, right? Recent books such as Anne Applebaum's Twilight of Democracy, you can see her thesis in the title, Democracy is in Top Twilight, but she doesn't offer a fix other than the old saying from Henry David Thoreau, simplify, simplify, simplify. She argues that political systems with simple beliefs appeal to human nature. And autocracy, nationalism, are very simple. They're not elegant, but they're simple. Now, I don't share this with you so you abandon hope. <laughs> I don't share this with you to alienate the few conservatives that we have as Unitarian Universalists. Even most UU conservatives are just as alarmed by what is happening around us. Again, it isn't a conservative versus liberal thing. It's democracy versus autocracy. And I also share this primarily because it's a reminder of our fifth principle, which says that we affirm and promote the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. Our principles are as close as we get to saying this is fundamental to Unitarian Universalism, fundamental to the faith, right? Democracy is a part of our spirituality, our faith, our religion. Call it what you will. It's there. And it doesn't just have to do with congregations saying yay or nay to a budget or replacing windows in a sanctuary. It has to do with our hopes for the world and our vision of how the world should be. It's why there's no room for any expression of extreme nationalism or authoritarianism in our sanctuaries. 
we would find that very alarming. We are a people of democracy. Even as your minister granted a slew of traditional bits and pieces of authority passed down from our period and heritage, right? I prefer to bring people in around a lot of those decisions. Our church leadership should know this, right? And those of you who've been church leaders know the benefit of doing that as well, of bringing people in. That is part of democracy as well. Now, all that being said, democracy is messy. Democracy is frustrating. Democracy takes a long time. But those critiques are also strengths. They temper our passions with discussion, compromise, and creativity. Autocracy, on the other hand, is knee-jerk, reactive, guided by an ethic of now, now, and now. Now, I don't want to disparage the books that highlight the problems faced um, by democracy. They're important. We need to know why and how. Go ahead and read them. Read more if you need to, if that helps you. But their answers are often highbrow and removed from daily life, our daily life, on the streets of Lexington, Kentucky. Or they repeat the same thing over and over, right? Reminders over and over. Join a voting rights organization. Excellent. Do it. Protest. Yes. Do it. All of the above are great and more. But because as Unitarian Universalists, democracy is a spiritual issue, I wonder how we can make democracy more spiritual. Because here's where I'm at with this, and maybe you don't want realism right now, <laughs> right? <laughs> but here I go. <laughs> I think the threats to democracy are in full swing. We will experience more effects of what is happening worldwide. We will experience the twilight of American democracy. It's going to happen. It is happening. The severity of this is outside of my scope, right? I, I can't gauge that. I don't have a crystal ball to gaze into to determine how bad things will be, right? But my hope is that everyday people will react swiftly and decisively so that the twilight of democracy is not an extinction. And so there's still hope in there, right? There's always a hope. Naming what we are facing is not pessimism, it's honesty. But pessimism is when we surrender our agency to resist, confront, and transform. One way we begin to fight pessimism in the face of what is happening is to make democracy more than a talking point. More than talking heads on a screen, more than an editorial, more than this or that politician. For Unitarian Universalists, it's making it a spiritual matter. And again, I mean beyond just yay or nay votes. Parker Palmer, a, uh, the Quaker author and activist, wrote a book some years back titled Healing the Heart of Democracy, the Courage to Create a Politics Worthy of the Human Spirit. Now, I'll admit the title is where the part of me that is pessimistic does shine through. Why so much faith in the human spirit? But I can't dwell there. I can't dwell there. I remember first reading this book, I think I had to in seminary, and I hated it and I loved it. Now I've attended several retreats with Parker Palmer since then, and they've been transformative. And they're all rooted in what he sees as an ex democratic expression of spirituality, of faith, across the faith spectrum. As a Quaker, his understanding of democracy is all about consensus. Right? That's democracy too. I used to believe that democracy was just winner takes all. 
But today, I'm convinced that one of the best expressions of it, best expressions of a democratic faith is in thoughtful consensus building. But anyway, it, everything Palmer offers up is anchored in this understanding. And he suggests that there are what he calls five habits of the heart that can heal democracy for us individually, communally, and eventually beyond. And I should add, while Palmer thinks this is possible politically, it begins spiritually. It begins with a community like ours and the spiritual disciplines we engage in together. And so here's the five habits of the heart. Number one, we understand that we are all in this together. <laughs> we are profoundly interconnected, which is also a Unitarian Universalist value. And while I could turn my naming of concerns with Trumpist nationalist politics and Republicans and Democrats and politicians across the spectrum into visceral personal attacks. Sometimes I do in the car when NPR is on, right? But no, I want to, but no. Democracy in the heart, in the spirit begins realizing that even the people we want to hate the most are still very human. Palmer warns us against making a road It appears that Reverend Brian has frozen on our screens, although in life, I assure you, he is warm and living. So take a few moments, breathe deeply, and we'll see what we can do for technology. Today's sermon will now be about why technology is frustrating. <laughs> okay, where were we, everyone? <laughs> we're at habit of the heart number two. <laughs> appreciating and valuing otherness. Hopefully none of my expletives when it all disappeared came through. <laughs> I do not appreciate the otherness of Zoom. But anyway, uh, here we are. When we look to our lines of separation, right, in our lives, in our communities, and we turn them into golden calves, right, Otherness becomes something to fear. One of my clear, very clear identifications, right, as an example, in life is that of being a Chicagoan, right? It's in my blood, generations deep. For those of you from Eastern Kentucky, you know what that's like. For those of you from communities that haven't left where you're from or you've returned to where you're from, you know what it's like to feel that, right? It'll never leave me, that identity. I have great pride in that city, in that culture, in that place. I love the jabs between New Yorkers and Chicagoans, what they throw at one another. But if I were to suddenly make it my goal in life to punish New Yorkers for not being like me, that's where we go wrong. Now, that example, fill in the blanks with whatever else is coming to mind because it's all around us, us versus them. But our goal is to turn that us versus them into us and them, to value otherness when we see it and we name it, we acknowledge it exists, right? People are different than us, but we bring that into a place where we can value otherness while valuing our own distinct personalities and cultures and origins and out of that comes hospitality, according to Parker Palmer, not division. Number three, 
We must cultivate the ability to hold tension in life-giving ways. I bet you're tired of hearing about holding tension during this pandemic. I know I am, right? But I'm trying to see it as an opportunity to expand my openness to tension. This is the perfect time to do it. There is tension everywhere. The tension of technology, right? Very recent example. The tension in relating to others, the tension we find in the divides we're experiencing. And seeing what I feel is half of the world, there's a tension of half of the world pretending this pandemic isn't happening anymore. Something that goes against my values and many of your values. And my instinct in the face of that is to shut down, to retreat, to yell. Every time someone isn't wearing a mask in public, I envision how I would tell them off. But if I creatively hold that tension and turn it into something life-giving, it's not in yelling. It's not in shutting down. It's not in retreating. It's in becoming an advocate for my values. It also opens up an awareness and compassion, right? It's hard, but it does. I can still disagree with people and their choices, but I can also listen and remember that listening does not mean agreeing. I can have compassion for the tiredness we're all feeling, the fear these maskless folks have toward authority or vaccines or whatever it is. It doesn't excuse tension or disagreement. It doesn't cure it, but it gets to what's behind it and opens up a means for us to still engage and to live. Number four. We must generate a sense of personal voice and agency. I don't like conflict. I don't like telling people no. In my experience as a minister, I've been readily accepting of things that I didn't do, that I shouldn't take the fall for, right? That have nothing to do with me, but I've let that happen. I've let that happen, not just in my professional life, but in my personal life too. And I know so many of you are like that as well. Personal voice and agency is not going out there and treating every day like uh, from Seinfeld, Festivus, airing your grievances to everyone and everything. It's not being knee-jerk reactive in finding that voice and agency about every grievance and slight. But it's also not about being nice. It's about being truthful and kind. Kindness can still disappoint us. Kindness can still disappoint others. It can still lead to conflict. It can still lead to tension, but niceness often makes us a doormat. Increasingly, I'm finding I'm choosing kindness over niceness. I'm choosing my voice and agency over being a doormat. And when we have agency, it means we can listen and not agree. We can be asked and say no or yes and mean it. And with practice, we become not just a discerning individual, but a discerning community. Habit number five, we must strengthen our capacity to create community. It was community that helped the oppressed Transylvanian Unitarians endure Catholic oppression. It was community that gathered the transcendentalists together to challenge religion. It was community that rallied behind the suffragette. It was community that amplified the act of civil disobedience Rosa Parks displayed. It was community over and over where every people acted as citizens and exercised their power, their voice, their agency. Gandhi was not a lone wolf. Mandela, Dr. King, Tubman, Dorothea Dix, name someone who changed the world. 
they had a community. The realization there is that it's not just the saints who are backed by community, but yes, also the sinners, those who would exact evil upon the world. The prophetic imperative then for us is to create communities of hope. That becomes so much clearer. So those are the five habits of the heart. You can find them wherever you need to find them on Parker Palmer's website. They're right there if you want to digest those more. Palmer remarks in his book, when a democratic society is working as it should, calling people to individual freedom and collective responsibility, it helps shape the kind of self that perpetuates democracy, a self that is simultaneously independent and interdependent. Now, it almost sounds like he's repeating Unitarian Universalist principles there, right? It does, because expressions of interdependence, independence, responsibility, democracy, and changing our lives are our values. And I feel like I've barely scratched the surface here, right? Like, go deeper into these. These habits of the heart are a starting point. They're a place where we as a spiritual community should implement them. Use them in our gathering. Use them in our meetings model what it means to not just talk about democracy, but make it a spiritual value. How would that transform our democratic values in this congregation? As citizens, how would we impact people? Palmer suggests that by living into those habits, it won't cure the ills that face democracy worldwide, but it will make us resilient. It will transform democracy from a thing that needs to be fixed or a thing that is failing into a part of who we are into something we don't just value as something other, but as something that is inwardly digested. Without that, what we are facing, what we are looking at is just an us versus them conversation. It's endless commentaries on the news. It's screaming and yelling more, it's hopelessness. But when democracy becomes spiritual, becomes truly a principle on which we live, it's not just something that is worthy of the human spirit, but it is something that sustains, enlivens, continues to bring hope even amidst the coming storm. So right there, that is where we begin. May it be so, amen.